Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. This week on Talk Nation Radio, we speak with Richard Tucker, who is one of the editors of the new book, Nature at War, American Environments and World War II. Richard Tucker is an environmental historian at the School for Environment and Sustainability at the University of Michigan. He is the founder and manager of a research network on the environmental consequences of military operations through history. You can see environmentandmilitary.com. Richard Tucker, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Good morning, David, and thanks for inviting me. Well, thanks for being part of putting together this wonderful book, Nature at War, American Environments and World War II. It seems to me that both World War II and the environment are enormous topics in U.S. culture. How is it that nobody has combined them before? That is the question that motivated us five years ago when we launched the project. It's typical of what we find in military history and environmental history publications. A a lot of the pieces of the picture of environmental impacts have already existed in loads of other publications, but never put together somehow. And the more we work on this, the more astonished we are that this seems to be the first time that environmental consequences of military operations in war and peacetime both have never quite been focused on before. And the task is enormous, as this book shows, with all the authors that we pulled together for the team. Still, once we're finished, we, we... have the continuing sense that the story isn't entirely told yet. And so we would love to go on to more work, pulling in more participants in the discussion. And we do hope that uh, a lot of other people who are immersed in World War II in their own personal memories or their work Oh, all the ways it shaped American life, both social and environmental. The two are inseparable. We hope that a lot of others will join the discussion and that readers and reviewers will point up what we didn't catch in this book. But it's been an exciting project. Well, it, it's uh, a wonderful work, even if nothing can ever be complete. Uh, it, it's it's quite thorough. What uh, what are a few of the of the ways that World War II changed things? One, of course, is and, and it was probably the central issue that we worked on and talked about together is the ways in which the war. Uh, solidified the military-industrial complex. But what does that term mean? It wasn't if the, the relationship between the military and industry, the economic machine, goes all the way back through human history. And the military 
preparedness or uh, national security, terms like that, have been central to governments or the structure of state systems throughout our history, which is, of course, for us in the peace movement, this is an endless burden. But uh, Until we end it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we have a previous book out uh, with, with a somewhat different set of uh, participants on the environmental history of World War One. That came out a couple of years ago, and that shows the uh, the the tentative beginnings of the military's close relationship with the American industrial machine and the British industrial machine and the all the participants in World War One. So the military industrial complex on the one hand is not new with World War Two but enormously accelerated. At the end of World War One, disarmament meant uh, a long lapse in that close connection that built the whole industrial economy. At the end of World War II, of course, that didn't stop. It went instantly into the Cold War. So a lot of the work that uh, environmental historians are doing now focuses on the Cold War, uh, the militarization of entire societies, which was done during World War II and sustained ever since then, without even a peace dividend after the uh, end of the Cold War. And that, of course, has been a real discouragement. Yes, indeed. It does. It seems that this book is a story of this of this burst, this fury of extraction and consumption and production uh, and environmental destruction uh, that then continues for the next seventy five years. That doesn't let up. Um, I, I was struck by one. Uh, in terms of extracting materials to build weaponry for the war, uh, you noted in the book that there were 136 raw materials that the U.S. government listed as strategic and critical at the start of the war, but 48 of them came from outside of the United States. What, yes. what, what resulted from that? <laughs> The chapter that deals with industrial minerals and all is one of my favorite chapters in the whole book. And for me, in my background as a global environmental historian, uh, that factor that you just pointed to is one of the most important. And it helps to explain the environmental dimensions of the struggle for domination in the Pacific between the U.S., primarily the U.S., for the Allies and Japan in the course of the 30s. For Japan, access to petroleum and rubber and, to some extent, timber were absolutely crucial for the survival of their growing empire. That's a story that has been written about dozens and dozens of times, but the environmental long-term significance of that hasn't been really pointed up as well before. And it brings us right up to date uh, 
in today's debate and strategic maneuverings about who controls rare earths. And in a couple of cases, it's China. Oh. Uh, the, so the strategic planners know all of this, but as environmental uh, stories and consequences, well, there's even more work to be done to get that focus into more of our minds and thinking, because it leads directly into today's ultimate challenge of the climate crisis. The uh, the military bases that we that we see across the United States, so many of them now Superfund disaster sites, uh, and across the world, a huge percentage of them came out of World War II, didn't they? That's a very dramatic story. Up until the late 1930s and the immediate run-up to the war, uh, the, the military controlled and managed a surprisingly small acreage. And then, as Jean Mansavage describes in her chapter early in the book, an enormous additional acreage, both inland and all around our coastlines, was added, most of it permanently, but not all of it, was added to uh, military control. And it's entirely understandable why that was during the war, but it left an enormous legacy into the Cold War years after that. And you mentioned Superfund. Uh, that's a hugely important part of the whole story as we move into the 1980s and beyond. The staggering pollution of land, soil, water, even air that the war produced huge amounts of federal money, taxpayers' money, uh, have been used to try to clean up some of the military sites. Uh, but the job is permanent, really. There's no way to complete it. So it's a legacy of World War II, and it's a global legacy, not just in the U.S., of course, uh, it, it's still with us. It's reshaped our uh, our societies, our economies. Well, this book, I should say, is a follow-up to another multi-author volume that we published several years ago on the global environmental history of the war, World War II. So the two of them combined really give the global picture, every continent, every ocean. We're speaking with Richard Tucker, and the latest volume is called Nature at War, American Environments and World War II, uh, one of four volumes on the two world wars and the environment. What uh, You know, before... Before World War II, it seems that the, the British obsession with the Middle East and all the violence that would follow from that followed the British decision to fuel their navy with oil. Uh, it seems that the, that the U.S. need for all of these materials to extract and all of this control of, of the world and all of these bases followed from the, the needs for fighting World War II, that the imperialism uh, comes from the wars rather than the wars coming from the imperialism. What do you think? 
I think it works in both directions, but I'm happy that you raised the question of Middle Eastern oil, the British and French control of the Middle East and reshaping of its uh, boundaries in the end of World War One. Uh, this leads on in a way that at first I didn't understand to another subject that uh, is developing in our network's studies, and that is the military uh, component of the fossil fuel era. You see the connection there, controlling Middle Eastern oil, the fossil fuel era. Uh, there are a lot of uh, publications and discussions about the military's role in the U.S. in particular, globally, but the U.S. spends 50% of its budget on military operations and 50% of the world's military budget. So it's primarily driven by the U.S. The question of how much the military has contributed to the climate crisis that is coming out of uh, the fossil fuel history. We have, in among the environmental historians, another group which uh, calls itself uh, energy history. Its work is developing rapidly, and for us working on the military dimension, uh, I'm looking forward to more work, more, uh, more collaborations, about specifically what portion of the global energy use has been military, uh, oil in particular, but coal as well, and natural gas. And my sense of it at this point is that we can do, uh, we can do the numbers, 7%, 22%. It's all very confused in the public discussion and the academic discussion now. It needs clarification, but the numbers alone don't tell us the whole story. Military collaboration, military planners with the oil industry shaped the development of the whole industry. And that's a much bigger story than just the use of coal, oil, and natural gas. And so it's one of the frontiers of our work at this point, and I think it's going to be very important for our understanding of military operations, the capacity of the military to uh, plan and allocate resource use well, you can see where that's going when we're talking about the end or the slowdown of the fossil fuel era. Uh, absolutely critical uh, work to communicate uh, to the public uh, that the military role in environmental destruction since World War II and, and at this moment, uh, I think, is very poorly 
understood. Uh, and uh, I, I read an article just before we were speaking, uh, suggesting that even in this pandemic, with everything shut down and people staying home and nobody going on airplane flights on vacation and so forth, people expected that uh, carbon emissions would be down, and they're at some 95% of where they were, I think because the factories are open and the weapons factories are open and the wars are still going on. Uh, is, there, is there a teachable moment here uh, for people to understand the role played by these forces? That's a powerful point, David, and I haven't seen it discussed very much. Um, it... it, it it seems to me that uh, that we live in a very different world uh, from just before World War II, that this book makes very clear to people that not just the military-industrial complex, but modern agriculture and chemical and pharmaceutical use and nuclear energy and the, the U.S. population moving to the South and the West and uh, all of these changes, uh, even... Even tobacco uh, is something that you you've laid at the feet of World War II, which I hadn't heard before. Can you can you describe yeah. describe how that happened? Uh, I'll jump in at two points here. Yeah, please. First, the tobacco story. Uh, it's one of the most surprising elements in that whole book, and we didn't anticipate it when we began the project. Uh, what Joel Bias has done uh, in that chapter is to trace the ways the wartime stress levels for the military in particular uh, led them to organize the tobacco economy into huge, incredible numbers of cigarettes. That feeds back, as that chapter shows, into the whole history of the tobacco industry, tobacco consumption, and tobacco lands in the southern states. Uh, and as he brings up in that chapter, and a whole book on the subject that he published uh, last year, uh, he shows that it took two generations for the military to stand back from the, uh, the the critical role that it played in the rapid expansion of the tobacco industry, tobacco consumption, and uh, a little bit beyond his story, as the American tobacco industry finally shrank in the late 20th century, the major tobacco countries moved into other parts of the world, some parts of southern Africa. So the story extends beyond what we've got in the book, but that's a really significant one. The other one that I uh, want to be sure to highlight here is Sarah Elkind's chapter on focusing in Los Angeles and the huge development of military industry in L.A., and as far as that goes, all the way up and down the West Coast and the Gulf Coast in the expansion of military industry during the war. And her theme is that local boosterism and local political maneuvering during the war played a critical, critically important role 
in the politics of where federal military contracts go. All of the, uh, by, by extension from that chapter, all of what we see in military industry is not just industrial. It's not just military strategy, but it's politics, local politics, state-level politics, and the environmental dimensions of that are enormous. Yes, indeed, and and a lot of military production and military bases, uh, for better or worse, I would argue worse, uh, went to went to southern states uh, that uh, that Roosevelt and others wanted to uh, appease the the elected representatives of, didn't they? Oh yes, and the uh, that's one of my favorite chapters in the book. And incidentally, I've mentioned. Uh, three chapters now that were written by military historians who have become uh, intensely concerned for the environmental issues. We have three or four military historians and uh, several more environmental historians who don't have military backgrounds in this collection, and so it represents a, a, a very important conversation between the military and the civilians in our collective thinking now. The Gulf Coast certainly represents it. Uh, It was industrialized, it was militarized during the war for obvious strategic reasons uh, in, in a way that just transformed societies, transportation systems, uh, and critically important ecosystems, domesticating and reducing the the, uh, diversity of ecosystems all along the coasts, especially the Gulf Coast and the Pacific Coast. It's, It's very important stuff and easy to overlook. It, it, it seems like the the incredible escalation in environmental destruction that accompanied World War II uh, was not due purely and entirely to ignorance of the environment and how it's destroyed. People could see the poisoning in front of them in some cases. Uh, it, it seems that it's it's the war. It's the it's the life and death survival uh, total. Uh, effort uh, that allowed that, that if this, if World War II had been some nonviolent campaign that had economic benefits but wasn't a war, uh, or if it had even been, you know, a struggle to, to shift to environmentally sustainable lifestyles, it would have had the opposite effect. Uh, but it was, it was only a war yeah. that could bring us the, the environmental destruction we now live with. Uh, am I right about that? There's where I appreciate the uh, the balance of several of our authors who remind us as readers that there was very widespread awareness during the war of the environmental damage that was happening, but most people, not all, said it's the price we have to pay for survival and winning the war. And one of the tragedies in the broader picture is that there was no let-up at the end of the war so that uh, the damage, most notoriously the uh, uh, the nuclear poisoning 
of nuclear weapons sites, uh, there was no way that it could be addressed in a serious way before the 1980s, by which time, of course, it was so very much worse. Uh, and one of the one of the areas that has struck me, where there was great awareness of environmental damage, was in the housing industry, with the huge movement of populations from the east to the, uh, the the deep south and the west during the war. U.S. historians know all about that, but what I haven't found, except uh, just in little bits and pieces, is that this meant uh, tremendously rapid construction of housing in some of the militarized urban areas. Seattle, Portland, all the way down to the Bay Area, Detroit, on and on the list goes, Gulf Coast, Houston, and a lot of that housing was done uh, very rapidly, poor quality, understandably, and in environmentally fragile areas, such as wetlands, which were disease-prone, very poorly uh, worked up for public transportation and sewage disposal. And in so many of those areas, because housing segregation was a long tradition, racially. A lot of those areas that were uh, environmentally uh, damaged and environmentally bad places for people to live, that's where the black population of the Great Migration from the South moving into the North and the West. Uh, The legacy for environmental injustice is uh, was enormous and that still hasn't been fully recognized we, we've got about two minutes left richard tucker uh, to, to switch to the positive side of things uh, in a token manner uh, a new environmental movement uh, came out of world war ii as well did it not yes it did and uh it, it really developed gradually during the 50s. One of my favorite books this year is Adam Rome's book on the first of Earth Day 50 years ago. It's a marvelous book published several years ago, and it shows how Earth Day in 1970 uh, it had its beginnings through the 50s and the 60s in the aftermath of World War II. But it was slow to uh, to come to grips, really, with uh, the continuing environmental damage in this country and internationally uh, in the years after World War II. There's more work that we need to do to understand that. Uh, Richard Tucker, where can people uh, find you and follow up and uh, keep in touch with what you're working on? I think the best way is to go to the project's uh, website, which, thanks, you mentioned it at the beginning, but it's called Environment and Military. That's just one word, environmentandmilitary.com. And I'd love to have 
more input onto that site. There is so much more work to be done, and we welcome critics. Terrific. It's a wonderful book. Highly recommend it. Everyone should get a copy. It's called Nature at War, American Environments and World War II. We've been speaking with one of the editors of the book, Richard Tucker. Richard, thank you so much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you, David. It's such important stuff. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.